My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Carrie Daniel. When Carrie Daniel's son was seven years old, she started getting calls home from his teacher on a regular basis. He'd never had any behavioral issues before, but now it seemed there were many. At first, she took this at face value and responded accordingly. But as she continued to get calls from this teacher, it became clear that something else was going on. Daniel said, quote, He couldn't breathe in the class without this teacher picking up the phone to complain. End quote. This was, in fact, a pretty classic example of one of the ways in which anti-black racism shows up in the school system. Black kids at around that age often begin to be subjected to excessive surveillance and policing, analogous to what black people in Canada face more generally. In the context of schools, this can look like heightened scrutiny from teachers, like getting in trouble for behaviors that are ignored or dealt with in a non-disciplinary way when exhibited by their peers, like harsher punishments, and like being tagged as, quote-unquote, a problem. This takes a major emotional toll on black children and youth. There are many other ways that anti-blackness shows up in schools as well. This includes inadequate responses to racist microaggressions and bullying. It includes black youth being disproportionately streamed into non-academic or low-achievement programs. Only 54% of black students said they felt supported by teachers in a 2006 census survey. Black and other racialized people are significantly underrepresented as teachers. And consistently, students face curriculum and teaching practices that erase or denigrate black histories and present-day realities. Daniel, of course, has had her own lifetime of experience of anti-black racism in school and elsewhere. But she said that in some ways, she really became politicized around becoming a mother, and her children's experiences really set the stage for her involvement in advocacy work related to anti-black racism in the education system. Her kids were in the York Catholic District School Board, just north of Toronto, so that was the initial focus of her efforts. There were also a handful of black parents and teachers doing similar things with the public school board in that area. After a public meeting drew all of them and many other black parents together, Daniel and a small group of others decided to start an organization to collectivize their efforts, which they called Parents of Black Children. In the summer of 2020, as racial justice protests were erupting across the continent and as the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic began to recede, the group held a march specifically for black students in Toronto. They formulated 10 demands for the Ontario Ministry of Education, including decolonized curriculum, police-free schools province-wide, collection of disaggregated race-based data, equity audits of all school boards in the province, and more. They've also been very involved in providing direct support to other parents. Because of how the pandemic has moved activities of all sorts online, they've been able to do this not just for parents in the Toronto area, but across Ontario. They have system navigators for supporting parents in relation to both the school and child welfare systems, which can include everything from accompaniment at meetings with officials to assistance in filing human rights complaints. 
They also offer workshops to help black parents learn more about the systems they have to deal with. Recently, they launched an online reporting tool for educators to submit information about incidents of anti-black racism that they experience or witness in Canadian schools. This is a tool for data collection and unfortunately cannot lead to action in the specific cases that are reported, but it is a way to begin building a much richer picture of how anti-black racism shows up in schools and using that as the basis for advocacy demanding systemic changes. Daniel couldn't really say whether or not last year's uprising had shifted how schools, boards, and the ministry are responding to anti-black racism. But she did say, quote, For us, this is a crisis, end quote. While from institutions with the power to make change, quote, There's no response with real urgency, end quote. Along with continuing their direct support for black parents and youth, Parents of Black Children is considering starting chapters in local areas to focus on advocacy at individual school boards. And they'll be continuing to put pressure at the ministry level for broader systemic changes. I speak with Daniel about anti-Black racism in the school system and about the work of Parents of Black Children. My name is Carrie Daniel. I'm a mom of two. I live in the greater Toronto area. I have a blog and podcast as well called Woke Mommy Chatter. And my background is communications and public relations work, and I do equity consulting. And our group, Parents of Black Children, is an advocacy group that was formed to really address the systemic issues of anti-Black racism and this disparity in education and also outcome for Black kids in the education system. So we advocate on behalf of Black parents, we support Black parents, and we provide resources to help Black parents build their knowledge in terms of the education system. I've always been socially conscious and socially aware. I grew up in Jane Finch, which in Toronto, they refer to as a high-priority neighborhood, meaning that there were a lot of immigrants and poor people and racialized people who lived in the community. And growing up in a community like that, which was a wonderful community from my perspective, but it really opens your eyes in terms of relationships with police, the ideas that people have and stereotypes that people may have about, you know, where you live. So social justice and advocacy and the needs of particular groups of people and communities has always been something that's been really close to me. When I became a parent, I think... You know, being a Black mother, it's political. I have a son and I have a daughter. And the honest truth is when my husband and I found out we were having a boy, we were scared. We love our children more than anything and we love our son. But we were frightened because of what that meant to bring a Black boy into this world. And we knew that there would be particular implications for what that meant about his experience and his safety. And I was really conscious about that in terms of his educational experience as well, because I know what my experience was. So parenthood really opened my eyes more so than anything. When my son was about four or five, we were driving in the car and he kept saying, like, blacky, blacky, blacky. And I thought he was saying lackey, like someone who kind of, you know, follows someone around. And I thought, wow, my child has a great, great vocabulary. So I turned to him and I said, where'd you hear that word lackey? And he said, I'm not saying lackey, I'm saying blackie. And then he kept saying it. So I pulled the car over and I turned to him and he said, where did you, who told you that? And he said, my friend said it's another word for black people. So, you know, I talked to him about why 
you don't use that word. But I also recognized that we needed support. Like it just wasn't enough for us to have our family and he needed to be surrounded by friends and people that look like him too. And I think that moment is probably one of the moments that really kind of drove me and got me involved, particularly in examining this idea of Black motherhood that later led to parents of Black children. Parents of Black children came together organically. My kids are in the York Catholic school board system. And we had another person, her name is Charlene Grant, and her kids were in York Public. At the same time, there were teachers within York Public, Black teachers who were organizing and coming together. And I was pushing in my board for equity and anti-Black racism initiatives and part of the equity committee at that board and really pushing them to examine the experience of Black children and the Black families in their board. And so all of us were working, doing this work kind of on our own. And then Claudette, who is a teacher who works in the York Public Board, called a meeting. And it was initially just York Public. I heard about it, called everyone I knew, including Charlene. And there were over 100 Black parents in the room. And out of that, a few of us came together and decided to start an organization. And at first, the organization was really just for York Region. It was just so we could collectivize so that I wasn't fighting alone in the York Catholic Board and they weren't fighting alone in the York Public that we would come together. But what happened is once we formed this organization and people heard about it, they came to us for support from Thunder Bay in Ontario, at the top of Ontario, right down to the bottom in Windsor. We've grown so quickly. We have over 2,000 people that we reach every month via our email newsletter. We are nationally incorporated now. We have people calling us from Calgary and Quebec and Nova Scotia wanting to start chapters. So it's grown more than we could have imagined. And it started out as a group of moms really coming together to advocate and work on behalf of our kids. And it's just ballooned into something bigger because people need support, Black families. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, and it doesn't matter where you live, what province, what country. The experience of our kids in the education system is the same, and it is heavy, is how I describe it. So what do Black children and youth face in the school system? We've gotten calls from everywhere, and it's the same stories. In my case, my son was only seven at the time. The teacher would call me consistently about everything he did. And this is a child that we never had issues with before, and we really haven't had issues with since this time. But he couldn't do anything. He couldn't. He told a story in class, and she called me because she thought he needed to go to a psychiatrist because she didn't like the story. There was a bunny in the story, and the bunny died, and we needed to talk about that. And then he had scissors in his hands, and it was art class, and she said he was a danger to himself and others. He would, you know, stand in line and she'd say that he's moving too much in line. He has to stand straight. And he was only seven. Like, think about that. He's seven. <laughs> he couldn't breathe in the class without her picking up the phone to complain or to call me or to problematize something, anything that he was doing. And it affected him emotionally. He began to be really anxious. He didn't want to go to school in the morning. He couldn't sleep. We had to get him a weighted blanket to ease his anxiety. They're microaggressions, but they're actually not micro. They're not as obvious. So for a parent seeing that, you may not necessarily recognize that as anti-Black racism, right? And for us, at first, we kept saying to him, like, why aren't you standing still? What's wrong? Why can't you behave? Like, what's going on? Putting all that pressure and blame on the child. 
And it wasn't until I'd read a report by Carl James and exactly what we were going through was identified in this report as the way in which Black children at around this age are problematized and that being a reason why they disengage. So Black children statistically are more likely to disengage from school as young as eight years old. It's that age, right, where they're growing up, they're beginning to be seen as a little bit of a threat, and they're targeted. We see a lot of that. We see a lot of Black kids being streamed and being put on independent education plans, Black kids being pushed into specialized programming or streamed out of specialized programming, like French immersion, for example. Suspensions are much higher for Black children, whereas they may not do that with another child, they suspend with a Black child. So these are the things that we see consistently, and it just doesn't matter if it's York or Peel or Durham, anywhere. It's the same. It's the same thing. And you mentioned earlier some of your specific concerns around having a son and the gendered impacts of anti-Black racism. How does that play out in the school system in terms of different impacts on boys and girls? Parents of Black children, we collect our own data. We have a systems navigator who is an advocate and will stand beside parents. So any parent that has a problem can go to our website, fill out the intake form, tell us what the issue is, and we will support. We'll go to meetings with them, write letters on their behalf, or connect them with Black educators if they want to run something by a teacher that isn't their own child's teacher. We connect them with legal supports. We'll help them if they want to file a human rights claim. We'll do all of those things to support them. And are we seeing a gender difference? Not really. And what we know is the data tells us that for Black boys, they're most impacted by the racism because they are seen as threats within the schools, particularly as they get older. But we're seeing it with our girls, too. So I don't know if there's a real gender difference. I think that generally for Black boys, because people identify the threat as a little bit different, it's harder for them. But I wouldn't say that because you have a Black girl that you're not going to experience the same thing. It might look a little bit different. Like our girls are called sassy. You know, they're told they have an attitude problem or people check them in a different way than our boys. It's interesting because of popular culture, often Black boys will come with a lot of social capital in high school, which is interesting, but exposes them as well in a different way. In the face of all of these barriers, what are some of the things that your group has been doing? We do a lot of advocacy. So at the beginning of the summer, just as the pandemic had kind of eased a little bit, we held a march. And it was the first march in Toronto for Black students ever. And it was great because we had people from all over come. There were hundreds of people there. And as part of that march, we formed 10 demands that we sent to the Ministry of Education Those demands ranged from reforming the Education Act, decolonizing the curriculum, right down to collecting desegregated race-based data, equity audits in schools. Those are also on our website. So we've pushed for those demands, and I'm happy to say that some of them have changed. One of them was around accountability for teachers who are perpetuating racism and discrimination in their classrooms. And what we've seen over the last few months is the ministry come out with an announcement to say that the Ontario College of Teachers is now going to categorize racism and discrimination as a professional misconduct. And that's a huge win. 
there's still a lot of gray. Like we need to understand what that professional misconduct means. But what that does is that anyone who can experience any form of discrimination or racism now has an avenue to report that teacher and for there to be accountability for the teacher in question. The other thing we do, as I talked about, was the system's navigation. So we do that for both education and child welfare. Parents fill out these forms for anything. Whatever it is, we come in and provide that support and add an extra layer of support for families. And we do the same thing in the child welfare space because we know our kids are funneled from education to criminal justice to child welfare. And so we do the same thing in that space. And then we also do workshops. We have a series of workshops that are led by our education team. And our education team are all teachers, Ontario certified teachers. And I always say like teachers speak a whole other language. And there's so many processes in schools that parents don't know. So, you know, I'm pretty involved in my child's education, but there are things I learned that I I didn't know. You know, the fact that there's a document called Growing Success, which means that if your child doesn't test well, like they don't do well on tests, you can ask your teacher to give them an alternative method of evaluation, right? You can challenge the grades on your child's report cards and the grades can be changed. They're not final just because they come on a report card. So things like that are the knowledge building pieces that we're giving to parents. And then we just launched an anti-Black racism reporting tool. What was happening was we were getting a lot of educators, many of them Black, but many of them not, who were saying to us, I'm speaking up for Black kids in my school, and I'm getting a letter in my file. My principal is saying that I'm a troublemaker. I'm not getting the advancements that I want to make, and I'm feeling like I'm being targeted because I'm speaking up. And they didn't have any place to take that because they didn't feel safe reporting it through their board or their union. So we've launched the anti-Black racism reporting tool where anyone who's working in the education space can anonymously report any instance of anti-Black racism that they see or that impacts them directly. The reason this is important is because it gives us the first visibility into what's happening for people who are working on boards across the province. We don't have that currently. We launched maybe about a week and a bit ago, and we have coming up to about 110 responses so far. And we're going to be looking at the data as it comes in and reporting back quarterly publicly on what we're finding. Let's talk in a little more detail about a couple of your demands. Why, for instance, is it important to make changes in curriculum? And what would those changes look like? Someone said to me today, actually, she's a teacher, and she said, you know, when I'm teaching, I always say to my class that if I'm teaching them something and I'm looking at the curriculum and I'm looking at the textbook and it's the same information that I learned 30 years ago, that's the problem. And she's right. When we talk about decolonizing the curriculum, it's really looking at including experiences that are not centered in a Eurocentric lens. Everything in our schools centers whiteness. Everything whether it is the Band-Aid that the office keeps when a child hurts themselves, right through to, we could talk about history books, but also even math or science or, you know, if your kids are in a Catholic school, religion, like just everything centers whiteness. And so part of decolonizing the curriculum is looking at the experiences of Indigenous communities and telling the story from their lens looking at the experiences of Black communities and telling the story from our lens. That's a really critical piece. It's important because kids need to see themselves. It's plain and simple. 
it's good for all kids, not just black kids, not just indigenous kids. It's good for all kids. And another of your demands is to have the police-free schools that certain boards have implemented extended across the province. Why is that an important change? What the data tells us is that at schools that have school resource officers or school engagement team, the interaction between police and Black students in those schools is much higher. Black students report that they don't feel safe going to schools with police. The other thing that we know that happens too is police, they're not just there to be friendly. Like we know that they are also there observing, they're making observations, they're reporting that, and our kids are targets when that's the case. So there really is no reason for police to be in schools. I think that at one time, it was believed that having police in schools would bridge the relationships and bridge the gap between community and police. That was, you know, in the 80s, 90s, maybe. We know now there's been a lot of research. We know differently. And when you know better, you do better, right? And that's what we're asking. We've seen the research. It's telling us that police in schools actually is not a good thing for Black and racialized kids. So let's get them out. There's no reason for them to be there. What have you been doing since that initial march that you mentioned to advance your demands with boards and with the province? One of the things that we realized really quickly when we formed as a group was that we can't take this fight to every board. So we will support parents when they come to us and we will fight for parents. But expecting boards to do the right thing isn't going to happen. So we really focus our energies and our advocacy at the province. We have been meeting, like we were meeting with the anti-racism critic at the time. We write a lot of letters. And we get our allies. We have a great group of allies. So we have a lot of people who are not Black and who are not even parents, but who recognize the urgency and the crisis and who, when we post a campaign on something, will write letters on our behalf and will inundate a board or the Ministry of Education with letters to the point that they can't ignore us. Socio-emotional learning is a good example of that. The ministry was rolling out a curriculum for math that was anchored in socio-emotional learning, SEL. And what they say is that it takes into account how children feel about learning math and takes into account their emotional state in terms of learning something. And it kind of meets them where they're at. What we know is that socio-emotional learning, the history of it is anchored in eugenics and like residential schools kind of come out of that methodology as well. And so we pushed for the ministry to stop rolling it out. They didn't stop completely. They paused. But that pause was because they were inundated with letters from allies and from parents who were concerned. I think our next push is to work with them to get them to understand that it's hard to roll a curriculum like that out if educators are not practicing from an anti-racist lens. Because what it means is you're asking educators to police children's emotions. And we know that when there are you know, white people who are policing the emotions of Black kids, it's not positive. So we've been doing a lot of campaigns and a lot of letter writing and a lot of resistance in that way and trying to drive change. In the course of all of these things that you're doing, do you have the sense that the responses that you're getting from these organizations on questions of anti-Black racism are any different today than they would have been before the uprising that happened last spring and summer? I think that's a hard question to answer. I think what I would say is my expectation is that the response 
would be more urgent. But what we're seeing is that it's not. For us, this is a crisis. It was a crisis before the pandemic. It was a crisis before the murder of George Floyd. But what the murder of George Floyd did and what that upswell of protests and recognition did is it shone a light on what we already knew. And it's horrible and disgusting that it took a man's death, another death, for that to happen. But it shone a light. And I would say the difference is that I think the conversation around how to support those who are doing the work, so funding for those who are doing the work, is a little bit different and probably a little bit more accessible than it would have been prior. But to me, there's no response with the real urgency. Like when we see the response to the pandemic, where systems bent and shifted and changed and did full 360s overnight to respond to the pandemic, which they needed to do. What we say is we're in a pandemic too. (laughs) This is like, we have a, like there's a racial pandemic. And so we need that response. And that's not the response we're getting. So for your group, what is the importance, but also what are the challenges of working with anti-racist teachers and other allies on the inside of the education system? It's important because we send our kids into the system unprotected. When you talk to teachers, they use language like, oh, you know, we love our kids. We work so hard and all those things are true. But what we know is that often that love doesn't extend to black kids. So the teachers will put themselves in front of white children or even kids of other races to almost protect them like a barrier from harm. But they won't do that for black children. And often the reason they're not doing it is not because they don't want to. And this applies to black teachers, right? They don't feel like they can do it in the same way because they feel like there'll be repercussions for them. So how can we as black parents send our kids into a system where teachers are telling us, even black teachers are saying, I don't feel I can speak up about the harm I see being caused to black kids or black students because I'm going to be harmed because I'm not going to get a promotion. I might lose my job and my family needs to eat. So that's the importance of the tool is that it sheds a light on what we know. This tool gives them some space to share their experiences and sheds some light on what's happening in the system so we can talk about it. Because, you know, when I say it out loud, I'm like, how can I send my kids into the education system knowing that there literally is no one there looking out for them? What does Parents of Black Children have planned for the next while? One of the main priorities is the analytics and the data that's coming in from this racism reporting tool. The response to this tool has been more than we could have imagined. So we're looking at partnering with a researcher to go through and start to pull the data so that at the end of the first quarter, we can do a report back. We're also looking at how we can address some of the deficiencies in terms of accountability at the boards and in terms of the list of demands, like where we need to push at the provincial level. And then the third thing is, like I said, we get a lot of people reaching out to us. So we're looking at also building action committees for each region that can actually engage with their school boards and organizing people in that way so that we're all kind of saying the same thing. And there's a local connection on the ground trying to do this work as well. You have been listening to my interview with Carrie Daniel of the group Parents of Black Children. To learn more about them, go to parentsofblackchildren.org.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>